he said, you guys need to make a decision on what is uh, biblical and what is not biblical, on what constitutes the Bible and what doesn't constitute the Bible, okay? Because in those days, uh, there were a lot of writers and there were a lot of uh, documents circulating and going around that people were calling uh, Bible a gospel or Old Testament, okay? And so Constantine called a council of the church leaders and said, you guys need to get together and make a decision because you're confusing us. <laughs> Amen. And so that's how we got our Bible because what they called the canon of God's word was then uh, decided upon because there were other writings that people were calling uh, gospel. Okay, but those were thrown out. And so there was a specific uh, criteria for what would be acceptable and what is not acceptable. And that criteria was, number one, was it written during a prophetic era? Okay? If this book was not written during a prophetic era by uh, one of the prophets or someone that had the authority and the calling of God upon their life, then it was not considered biblical. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament criteria was, uh, was it written by one of the apostles or during the apostolic era? During the time the apostles were still alive and on the scene, was it written by one of them or someone that walked closely with the apostles? If it wasn't written by one of the apostles or someone that walked closely with the apostles, it wasn't acceptable. Okay? So you had to draw that boundary because you had a group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed something. Uh, they believe in God and they believe in Jesus, but not in the same way that Christians believe in Jesus. Okay, they said Jesus was not really the son of of God. You know, he was this great teacher and this great prophet. Uh, and in fact, some of them went as far as saying that he wasn't really fully man. Okay, and so that distorts our gospel as we know it, because the gospel said that Jesus Christ is the uh, theanthropos, the God man. Okay, the God man. The 100% uh, man, but yet 100% God. That is the mystery, okay, of our salvation. The reason he had to be 100% God is because man does, did not qualify, okay? The blood of man did not qualify. Listen to me. Man did not qualify to bring your salvation because of original sin, okay? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only blood that could appease the only blood that could appease God, okay, the justice of God. Because when we sin, okay, when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, uh, it affected all of us. The reason it affected all of us is because you and I were in seed form inside of Adam. You say, I wasn't born. I didn't do it. Adam and Eve did it. Why do I have to suffer for it, okay? Because they were the first humans. And you and I were in seed form inside of Adam. So when Adam sinned, you sinned. Are you with me? And eventually, the rest of the uh, earth was populated with us, but we all came out of Adam. So we inherited Adam's original sin. Are you listening to me? And so later on, as it, we, we get down to it, uh, God said, but I have a plan. I have a plan because the seed of the woman uh, will bruise the head of the, of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. Okay, he was talking about the enemy, but he was also talking about Jesus. Jesus being the seed of the woman. So Jesus was 100% man, yet he was 100% God. Okay, because the blood of goats and sheep 
and no blood was pure enough to satisfy the justice of God. Because when we sin uh, through Adam, what we inherited was the justice of God because God is a just God. Are you listening to me? If God didn't judge sin, we will accuse him of not being just. <laughs> and so because he's a just God, when we sin, justice is part of his nature. He had to execute justice, but he's also a gracious God. He said, I, I have to execute justice, but at the same time, I love them so much, I don't want to annihilate them. So there was a tension between grace and justice. Are you listening to me? So he said, but this is how I'm going to do that. I can resolve this tension. Okay? I can resolve. I can satisfy my justice while at the same time giving grace. <laughs> this is the mystery of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. He said, I'm going to satisfy my justice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my only begotten son, my son Jesus Christ. Basically what God was saying is I'm going to wrap myself in flesh and go as man. And I'm going to take the punishment for the crime called sin so that my justice can be satisfied. But because I am God, devil can't kill me because the enemy held you as a ransom and he said oh see what they did sin has separated them from you and there has to be justice because he was not saying God if you don't punish them you're not God so the enemy was accusing God but God doesn't have anything to prove but he is a just God and his holiness had been offended okay and he said but this is what I'm going to do I'm going to satisfy justice while at the same time I'm going to give grace. So when he sent his son Jesus Christ wrapped in flesh, basically what Jesus came to do was to shed his blood because his blood was the only pure blood that qualified to appease God for the offense that had been committed. No other blood qualified. So he came as 100% man, man, yet he was 100% God. So when he died, on the cross, he died as man. It was man that was paying the price for the sin he had committed. Yet, it was God that was giving grace based in law. But God said, you know, he only gave the law to show us that we could never be good enough. The law only exposed how sinful we really are. And there were people who attempted to live by the law. There were people who attempted to cross every T and dot every I and do everything that the Old Testament said. And they failed miserably. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene and he saw the Pharisees, he said, look at you. He said, you're, you're, you're telling people to do things and you're asking them to do things that you yourself don't even do. He said, not only uh, are you, have you become a stumbling block and you stop them from entering the kingdom. He said, not only do you not enter the kingdom of God, now you're stopping people from entering the kingdom of God. Because you're giving them all these rules and all these regulations and you're condemning them, okay? And not only that, you're also cheating, okay? And you're scheming and conniving, okay? He said, you're dead man bones in whitewashed clothing because they will walk around in these white robes. Okay, and they will look really holy. And when the Pharisees were walking around, people would be like, holy, sir, 
Yes, sir. God bless you. You know, everybody. And they would walk around and they were really pompous and really high-minded. And Jesus hated them. <laughs> Always. Sometimes Jesus would see them coming. Jesus was hardest on the religious folk. Did you know that? He loved the wine bibbers and the prostitutes and the other people. But the religious folk, he hated them. Because they were hypocritical. He would see them coming. He would say, look at you, hypocrites. You brood of vipers. Who has warned you? I mean, he's like, wow. <laughs> Jesus is tough, man. You know, he was hard on those folks. Why? Because they were misguiding and misleading people. Okay? They were portraying something that really was in the heart of God. That really was in the passion of God. Because God's heart was that all would be saved. That all would come to him just as they are. That you didn't have to fulfill all these religious requirements to come to him. That it is love ultimately that wins the day. Okay? But the religious folks say, no, 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 no. You got to bring, in fact, when you brought your sacrifice to the temple, they were inspected. Okay? And they were inspected. And they were, that's what Jesus said to them. He said, you have weights that are off balance. He said, you, you're cheating the people. You know, you're weighing stuff and you're measuring stuff. And you're not, because now this became uh, a business, a commercial uh, game for the, the, the priests and, and, the, and the Pharisees and the leaders of the, of the temple. So when people will bring the sacrifice, they will say, this sacrifice is not good enough. Uh, so you need to go bring another one. But they'll say, but I travel uh, 50 miles by donkey to get here. How am I going to go? They say, oh, don't worry. We can sell you a, a better one. <laughs> and then they will sell it to them for two to three times the price that it was already worth. That's why when Jesus went into the temple, he was turning tables over. That's what made him mad. Because they were cheating and scheming and extorting people. Oh. So, we have our Bible then that is given to us. And the criteria is, is it written during a major apostolic era? Okay, because the disciples were the, became the apostles. All 12 of the disciples. And if the scripture wasn't written during the time that they were on the scene uh, by someone who walked with them closely like Luke. So Luke wasn't a disciple, but Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. So he traveled with Jesus and the disciples all over the place. So he has firsthand account of the things that happened, of the miracles, of the movement, and, and, and the things that happened with the life of Jesus and with the life of the disciples. So his first account is what we call the gospel according to Luke. Okay? So Luke gives us his gospel, and after he writes the gospel according to Luke, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Luke said, I need to write a follow-up to my gospel. So he writes the book of Acts. Okay? And a lot of people call it the Acts of the disciples or the Acts of the apostles. But really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What Luke is documenting is the Acts of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Jesus Christ. So this is what happens, okay? I'm just giving you, I'm setting some groundwork so you can understand the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is what happens. After Jesus is crucified, okay? Jesus is crucified. Listen, a lot of people, and I've gotten this a lot, Pastor B, where people ask me, how do you get three days after Jesus is crucified and he dies on the cross at Golgotha and you tell me three days later, you know, he rises or he is raised 
from the dead. I don't see three days. How can someone die on Friday and Sunday be the third day? There's something missing here. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Amen. I'm going to help you this morning. All right? I'm glad you asked. So according to Jewish uh, calendar, according to the Jewish calendar, the Jewish day starts at twilight. You get where I'm going? So the Jewish day, you know what twilight is? Twilight is 6 o'clock in the evening. So as the sun is going down, you have twilight. That's the start of the Jewish day. Our days start early in the morning. When we wake up, we're like, it's a new day. No, the Jewish day starts at twilight. So Jesus is really arrested on Wednesday evening. He's arrested on Wednesday evening, and they take him to the temple, and they go through all their interrogation. They take him to Herod, take him to, uh, uh, what's the other guy, Pontius Pilate. And he goes, so all that is happening Thursday. Are you with me? Thursday evening. It's when he's crucified. The scriptures say at about the third hour, he gives up. He says, it is finished. Okay? The moment Jesus says it is finished, literally, in, if, you, if you study anything about Jewish tradition, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, this is on during the Passover. At that very hour that Jesus said it is finished, that's the very hour that the priest uh, kills the lamb. The lamp that is to be sacrificed during Passover is right at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The same words that the priest utters. The priest also says, it is finished. God is intentional. Okay? So Jesus, when he gives up the ghost at the third hour and says, it is finished. At that same time he's saying that, the priest is also saying that in the temple. Okay? But then the scripture says that right at that moment, there is a solar eclipse. Okay? That's what it means when you read the scripture, it said it got dark. The sun was darkened. Okay? There's a solar eclipse that literally takes place at that, at that hour. Okay? And there's an earthquake. Okay? To this day, to this day, there's historical records that showed you that an earthquake occurred around that period of time in that particular area of the world. Okay? So God knows what he's doing. So as the priest is saying it is finished, Jesus says it is finished. But he's the real sacrifice. He's the true sacrifice. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. So do you know what happens in the temple at that moment? The veil in the temple is ripped from the top to the bottom. Okay? The veil is what uh, protects the holy of holies. So you have the holy place and then you have the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, you have something called the mercy seat. Only the high priest was allowed behind that curtain once a year at Passover to take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and spread it on the mercy seat so that God will, uh, to appease God, so that he will forgive the sins of the people and have mercy on them for one year. And then the following year, the priest will have to go and repeat that. But then the scripture says Jesus died once and for all. After Jesus provides the perfect sacrifice, you never have to do it again. It's done. So Jesus, so the priest is saying it is finished. Jesus is saying, oh no, it is really finished. <laughs> it is done. It's complete. It's over. Because he sheds his blood. And then what happens then? So this is Thursday. 
at twilight. Remember, the Jewish day begins at twilight. So you got Thursday at twilight, Friday at twilight, Saturday at twilight. How many is that? Three. <laughs> so he's in the grave three days. And basically, he's dead three days. Three days and three days. But there are beliefs, okay? Scholars who believe that while he's in the grave, he's not really in the grave, but he descends into heaven or into this uh, prior to the New Testament, there was this holding place called the bosom of Abraham. And there are different descriptions of it where Jesus descends and preaches the gospel in hell, wherever that is, okay? And when he is raised from the dead, all of those who are dead in God or the dead in Christ, because now people say, how is it that they're dead in Christ if Christ came after you know, how did they know him? How did they, you understand what I'm saying? And I have a whole nother explanation for that that will help you and blow your mind. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, Jesus is the same one. He is the lamb that is slain from the beginning of time. Okay? So the light, the, the Old Testament saints and the Old Testament Christians are still saved by the blood of Christ. <laughs> are you listening to me? We're all saved by the blood of Christ. Okay, well, if you have questions about that, meet me over. I can't go into that now. But he gives up the ghost. And when he's raised from the dead, there's actually recordings and documentations of dead folk coming up. Because when Jesus is raised, everybody that's dead in Christ, that died having faith in God, is raised with him. And literally, people are saying they're Dead people walking around the streets that have been dead for years, knocking on doors and saying, hey, what's up? Can I come in? And they're like, well, what's going on? You know? So this mystery happens, okay? Because he busts open the grave, and the grave cannot contain him, okay? And so he shows himself to his disciples and to over 500 other believers, is what the scripture says, for 40 days. So when Jesus is raised from the dead, he's actually showing himself to people, saying, I'm really here. At one time, he appears to the disciples, and there's a guy by the name of Thomas. And Thomas is like, you know what? <laughs> I don't believe in ghost stories. Can I touch you? <laughs> Let's make sure you're really the guy, <laughs> right? And he said, hey, feel the nail prints in my palm. I'm really, you know, he's now glorified, okay? He's no longer you know, there's this mysterious thing that's happening because he's raised from the dead, but he's walking around in flesh, okay? But yet he's glorified, okay? So this has to be some sort of glorified body. Now, there are scholars that believe that he's not fully glorified yet because he hasn't taken the blood to the mercy seat. So 40 days later, when he ascends into heaven, he takes the blood to the Father and says, Father, I've done it. It's over. And he puts the blood on the mercy seat, and it's all over. And so you don't get to see him again. The next time we see him is in his second coming. And the scripture says that the heaven will bust open and all eyes will behold him. And he will be in this glorified body. Okay? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are still living and we still believe in God, we will be raptured. The scripture says we will be caught up with him. You see, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get you excited about heaven. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, you know, this is not it. This is not the end, okay? There's a rapture that's coming. Touch your neighbor and say, there's a rapture coming. 
I'm not talking about the rapture on Netflix either. I'm talking about the real rapture. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> There's a rapture coming. Okay. So the scripture tells us then that after he shows himself for 40 days to his disciples, okay, and they touch him and they feel him and they commune with him, one day they're out in the fields and they're saying, uh, will you, you know, Jesus, uh, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? Because this whole time, you got to understand, the Jewish people are an oppressed people, okay? They're living under a repressive system that has uh, ha had them in chains and repression. So they're not really free. Okay, they give them some degree of freedoms. You know, they, they can move around. They can still practice their religion and all of that. But they're not really free. Okay? And nobody likes to be, uh, you know, you say I'm free, but there's still restrictions. You understand what I mean? That's not true freedom. Okay? True freedom don't have any restrictions apart from the restrictions that I put on myself. Apart from self-leadership because of my love for God. Okay, it's voluntary. So true freedom says you're free, okay, apart from the restrictions you place on yourself voluntarily. But I'm free to also volunteer to do that. You get what I'm saying? That's true freedom. Anyways, so these are not free people. So it said, Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom? When will you take us back to the days of David? We want it like it was when David was on the throne because those were that's the period you call the golden ages of Israel. You had the United Kingdom. David was the king. David was the most powerful king they had ever seen. Those were the good times, man. Those were the golden ages. And then after David leaves the throne, of course, his son Solomon, who can't keep his stuff together, uh, <laughs> ascends to the throne. But he marries all these foreign wives who worship all these foreign go gods. And in his old age, his heart is deceived and is carried away from the true God of Israel. Okay? Because they invite all these people with all their weird worship uh, styles and, and these gods that they worship. And they deceive him. Okay? So he thought he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. That's why you got to be careful the kind of friends you hang out with. Okay, when you're saying you're the only believer among uh, your friends and you got four, five of you, you got four other friends who don't believe and they believe whatever goes, you know, it's just we just do whatever, we live our life anyhow. And you think you're going to convert them and you're the only one in the midst. I'm not saying don't be cool and don't be friends and don't be an influence, but at some point you are not that strong. <laughs> and you got to recognize that. You got to recognize that there's strength in numbers. And at some point, you got to surround yourself with some other people who are praising Jesus and saying, thank you, Lord, and got some Holy Ghost up in them. <laughs> you understand? Rather than just surrounding yourself with people who are doing everything and every other thing, okay? That's why you're confused now. That's why you're conflicted. Because when you hang around that stuff too much, after a while, you start to say, you know what? This homosexual thing really ain't that bad. Matter of fact, let me experiment with it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? That's how the enemy starts. And he starts to slowly deceive you. Okay? The scripture speaks of, of Samson and Delilah. Okay? And it speaks of her in a very beguiling way. It says she sits. In fact, if you read Revelation, it talks about uh, the harlot. It says she sits upon the hill arrayed in purple and scarlet. 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she says to you, how canst thou say I love you when thine heart is not with me? <laughs> oh, how the lips of the heart are drips with honey and how her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharper than a two-edged sword. <laughs> Run. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's beguiling. It's, it's, you know, it's tantalizing. It's, you know, you want to taste it. You want to, you know, you want to touch it. You want to feel it. You want to partake of it. It's just something about sin that is just, ah. You listening to me? But you're not that strong. You need to surround yourself with some friends who are praying in the Holy Ghost, who can pray you through when you're really in deep waters, when you're really in trouble, when you're really going through some things. You need some people you can call and say, pray me out of here in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't care how much your mama loves you. If she don't got the Holy Ghost, she can pray you out of certain things. You need some folk that got, oh, Lord. And we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost here in just a moment, okay? Because now, Luke, the physician, is right. he writes the gospel of Luke. And then he gives us Acts, and he tells us all this story. And he said, Jesus ascends into heaven. But now, this is what Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends. He said, wait right here in Jerusalem. Stay together. Don't scatter yet. Remain together and wait because the gift that the father promised is going to be sent. But he cannot send that gift until I take the blood to the mercy seat. Are you listening to me? He can't send that gift until it is done completely over. Okay, I know you see me now and I've, I've, I've risen from the dead and I'm walking around, but there's one little piece of thing that we need to do. One last unfinished business. I got to go back. I got to get out of here. And until I get out of here, don't do anything. Don't try anything. Don't go walking around like you're something you're not and you, you're Mr. Wonderful and God's gift to the world. Don't do anything yet because you don't have the power. Somebody say, you don't have the power. Say, but I'm going back to the Father, and once I finish this thing, and we inaugurate, I get inaugurated now as the one, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. After the inauguration, he's going to release the Holy Spirit, and he's going to fall on everyone. And there's going to be a revolution. There's going to be a revival. And you guys are going to take the world by storm. But don't do anything yet. You listening to me? So Jesus gets out of there. He ascends. And as he's ascending, why they're asking him, are you going to restore the kingdom? He said, this is not just about restoring the kingdom of Israel. This is bigger than that. Somebody say it's bigger than that. He said, this is way bigger than that. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm about to do things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men. The things that God has hidden and preserved just for you, just for those that love him. He said, what I'm about to do will blow your mind. What I'm about to do will change the world. It will revolutionize the world as you know it. It's not just about this little kingdom. You guys are great and all. I love you and I came as a Jew and all that. 
But this is bigger. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about a kingdom that every man can come into. Are you listening to me? And they say, oh, okay. They still don't get it. So while he's explaining it to them, and they're still like trying to say, oh, you understand what he's saying? The scriptures say he's caught up in the cloud, and he ascends to heaven, and they don't see him anymore. And while they're standing there, they're like, oh, I guess he's not going to do it yet, huh? <laughs> and so two men in bright clothing appear to them. The angels appear and say, why are you standing? He told you to go and wait. Why are you still standing, you know? He's, he's gone. <laughs> this is over, <laughs> you know? He got in his cloud plane and, he, you know, he took off, man. <laughs> Rocket. Anyways, you know, they're like, oh, I guess it is over, you know. And they decide. So they're, they're ready. To, at this point, they're ready to know what to do. You know, they're more confused than ever before. And, but they do stay together. They remain together. And the scripture says that they're congregating to, together. And they're constantly meeting together from home to home. You know, mainly John. Who was uh, who? Father uh, James and John were brothers, right? And the father CBD, and so I, they were a little bit of more of a well-to-do family. So he often hosted them. I believe they were in the upper room in John's house when the Holy Spirit uh, would fall. So they're waiting, they're waiting, okay. And Jesus ascends, okay. And here's what happens: they're waiting for fifty days, no, ten days after his ascension. 50 days after his resurrection. So they're waiting for 10 days. Nothing happened. Day one, nothing happened. Man, we left yesterday. Where we waiting? Where's this gift? You know, is a cloud going to bring it? Is it going to fall from heaven like manna? What's going to happen? Nobody knows how it's going to happen. So imagine the anticipation. Imagine the anticipation. All they know is that every morning we're going to wake up, do what we have to do quickly, and get to that spot as quickly as we can so we can all be together and just waiting. Now, these are people who have vocations. These are people who have work to do. Some were fishermen. Some were, uh, you know, they make garments and of purple and, and different. They, they had work to do. And he said, just wait. <laughs> okay. So I guess we'll wait. Now, check this out. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost. Now, this is important. Let me tell you why it's important. The reason it's called Pentecost, Penta, 50. is 50 days, okay, from Passover. Because within the Jewish tradition, they're already celebrating Pentecost. Pentecost is not something that's happening because of Jesus. Okay, within Jewish tradition, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. Pentecost, do you know what they celebrate on Pentecost? Pentecost is when the Jewish people celebrate, they call it Shavuot. And what they separate, what they uh, celebrate on Pentecost is they, um, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Remember when Moses, okay, in Exodus, when they get to Mount Sinai, the scripture says, God appeared to Moses and said, tell the people to consecrate themselves. Tell them nobody should come even close to the mountain because the mountain is going to tremble and there will be smoke. The presence of God is going to come on that mountain. And when the presence of God descends on that mountain, Moses, I'm going to give you the law that the people are supposed to live the life by. That's the Ten Commandments. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay? 
And so the scripture says that the mountain quaked that day. There was literally an earthquake. Listen to this. And 3,000 people who didn't obey and came too close to the mountain were killed instantly. On the day of Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And the scripture says that 120 of them are in an upper room. And they're on one accord. And they're waiting. Like God, like Jesus said to wait. And while they're waiting, this thing hits the room like a storm. Boom. And there's clothing tongue of fire on their head. And the scripture says they begin to speak in tongues. And there was a powerful shaking. Like a mighty rushing wind. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gets up and he preaches the gospel from Genesis all the way to that point. And 3,000 are added to the church on that day. <laughs> Listen to it. 3,000 in the Old Testament are killed when the law is given because the law binds and the law exposes your sin, but the law doesn't save. But 3,000 are saved when the spirit is given <laughs> on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus changes the entire meaning of what Pentecost is. He said the law was given. The law which leads to death is given in the Old Testament on this day. But under the new covenant, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit which leads to life is given. Are you with me? And he pours out his spirit upon all flesh. And they began to speak in tongues. And so the people that were in that, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish people, because people come from all over the region on the day of Pentecost to worship in Jerusalem. They say, what's happening? These guys who are unlearned are speaking in the languages that we understand. We are from Cyrene and Egypt and all over this region. And there's a miracle happening here because we understand what they're saying. As if some of the Jewish leaders say, oh, don't worry about them. They, these guys used to follow Jesus. They're just drunk. And Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk, as you suppose, seeing as it is only the third hour of the day. You know, that means we don't, you know, we start drinking after six, baby. <laughs> we don't drink before six o'clock, <laughs> right? It's too early to be drunk. <laughs> you know, we ain't turning up yet. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, we, no, it's too early. He said, but these people, he said, this is the promise according to Joel 2.28 when he said, in those days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your uh, young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So this is it. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out his spirit on all flesh. Okay. Now why am I saying this to you? And we're closing right here. According to the book of Acts, he says the spirit of God, he said, wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the gift. The gift that the Father promised is going to be released. And that gift is the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. That's the gift they receive on the day of Pentecost. It's the Spirit of God. He is poured out. And now you see, as you follow all through the book of Acts, if you follow the ministry of the disciples and everything they're doing, everywhere they go, 
as they're praying for people, as they're uh, doing what God has called them to do, they're backed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit being poured out. You see the Holy Spirit being poured out on the lives of people. So I'm laying this foundation because over the next few Sundays, we're going to be talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit and why you need the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, this is what's going to happen. He said, wait here and don't do anything. Wait in Jerusalem. He said, because when the Spirit is poured out, you will be my effective witnesses. Somebody say witnesses. Witnesses. Okay. He said, this is why you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit because without the Spirit, you can't effectively be a witness. You can't effectively do anything that I've called you to do. You can do some things. Don't misunderstand me. But if you're going to effectively do what I've called you to do, if you're going to do it in such a way that it is undeniable that the hand of God is on your life, that it is undeniable that the spirit of God is with you. If you're going to do it like I've called you to do it, you need the spirit. Touch your neighbor and say, you need the spirit. Touch your other neighbor and say, other neighbor, you need the spirit. Hallelujah. You need the spirit. But when the spirit comes upon you, he said you will receive power. Somebody say power. Why do you need the power? To be his witness, to be his effective witness. Where? In Jerusalem. Okay. In Samaria. In all of Judea. And to the ends of the earth. Okay. Say that for me one more. In Jerusalem, in your city. Okay. Let's start with your church. Let's start with your church. In Jerusalem. In Judea, or no, Samaria, okay? So let me, let me put it in perspective for you. Jerusalem is cursed. Samaria, that's, yeah, Tarrant County, okay? Uh, Judea, that's DFW. Let's say DFW, okay? And to the ends of the earth. The whole nation, the world. Are you listening to me? He said, you're going to be my effective witnesses in your immediate surrounding, in the cities around you, all over the nation and all over the world. When people hear your testimony, when you write that book, Robin, it's going to go viral. Oh, Jesus. It's going to go all over the world. It's going to start by affecting people right within your domain, and then it's going to blow up because you are my witness. And you have the spirit. He said, my spirit will be on that. This is what the spirit is for. So you can be an effective. Because you need it. You can't do it on your own. Somebody say, you need the spirit. Touch your neighbor say, you need the spirit. You need the spirit. Touch your other neighbor say, other neighbor. You need the spirit. You need the power. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you this morning. Thank you that your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. To the dividing asunder of flesh and spirit, bone and marrow. We thank you, Lord, that you're able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ever ask or imagine. I pray, Lord, for every person here this morning, may your spirit, oh God, overtake them. May your spirit, oh God, 
May they have an encounter with you this week. May they have an encounter with you that will change their life, that will turn around the circumstance. May they know that they need you more than they've ever imagined. May they know, though, that if you are for them, who can be against them? That no weapon formed against them shall be able to prosper. And every tongue that rises up against them in judgment has already been condemned in the name of Jesus. We cover your people with your blood. We cancel every assignment of the enemy concerning them this week. Everything that the enemy has scheduled.